In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity. And welcome back to another week on the Catholic Toolbox, the art of practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh, here as we compute practical tools to live the Catholic faith in our modern world of today. And this week is dedicated uh, to the tribute of our late Cardinal George Pell, uh, an absolute prince of the church, a hero of Australia. And this week I've brought in uh, Reverend Father John Flader and Daniel Hill to discuss and uh, to pay tribute to his late eminence. Welcome aboard to the Catholic Toolbox, gentlemen. Good to be here, George. <laughs> Thank you, George, and good to see you, Father. Uh, excellent. So to go over Cardinal Pell's life, uh, Cardinal Pell was born in uh, on the 8th of June in 1941 um, and was uh, held the previous position of the Prefect of the Secretary of the Economy between 2014 and 2019. He was ordained a priest in 1966 and a bishop in 1987. He was made cardinal in 2003 by Pope John Paul II. Uh, cardinal Pell served as the 8th Archbishop of Sydney and 7th uh, Archbishop of Melbourne and the Auxiliary of Melbourne between 1987 to 1996. He was an author, columnist and public speaker uh, until... Many, many years, uh, feels like many, many years, his conviction, uh, which was overturned by the High Court of Australia and uh, and finally returning to Rome. And uh, and it was just an absolutely shocking news that came to me. I remember I was in a meeting and then I got a call from my wife uh, that Cardinal Pell had passed. And it was an absolute shock. And, and uh, it came as a shock to me and I'm sure to the both of you gentlemen. Um, but we'll start with Father. Um, what are your first recollections of his eminence? Well, the first time I met him, I think, was when he was auxiliary bishop of Melbourne. He was living in Mentone in a house on the property of the parish there. And I was visiting the parish priest, Father John Walsh. And he said, you must meet Cardinal Pell or Archbishop Pell. He was auxiliary bishop. So I went out to see him. And interesting thing, there was a connection now with Archbishop Fisher in that I was organizing another bioethics seminar in the University of Tasmania, where I was chaplain at the time. I'd organized one the previous year. We had uh, William May from the United States, uh, an eminent bioethicist. And I think this was the second, which would have been perhaps 1994. And then I went to see him and I mentioned inter alia that I was organizing another bioethics seminar. And I was interested in getting a bioethicist from Melbourne to speak. And I had in mind Nick Tontifilippini, 
may he rest in peace. And then Bishop Hell said, oh, you must get Anthony Fisher. He's the brightest light on the Australian bioethics horizon. And what is more, he won't say no. I'd heard about him when I was going to Canberra when he was just a young Dominican. People were singing his praises then. So I got in touch and he came, he didn't say no. He came to that seminar and he came to another one a couple of years later. So that was my first introduction to Bishop Pell. Then when he became Archbishop of Melbourne, which I think was 1997, he invited Opus Dei to set up a center in, in Melbourne and he offered us two jobs for priests. One was parish priest of St. Mary's Star of the Sea, West Melbourne, which would take effect when the incumbent priest finished his six-year term, and I think that was 2001. But the other job was being chaplain of RMIT University, which I took up. I had been chaplain of the University of Tasmania. So I went to Melbourne and began as chaplain of RMIT. And in that job, I would see him frequently just to report on how things were going, plus seeing him in other contexts, maybe a mass or a dinner for priests, whatever it might be. So I came to know him extremely well. Then when he went to Sydney as Archbishop, he invited me in particular to go to Sydney to be director of adult education, something that I wasn't all that keen to do because I thought I was happy in Melbourne and this might be a difficult job. <laughs> One of the um, ways that went was this, that he rang me to, to invite me to take up the job. And I thought to myself, any sensible person would first find out what the job is all about before accepting it. So I made an appointment to see him, got an air ticket from Melbourne to Sydney, saw him, and, and then um, flew back that same afternoon. And, and he said, you must really meet the staff. So I came back later to meet the staff. But he explained what the job was all about. And then he, he said at the end, can I take it that you accept the position? And I had to make up my mind pretty quickly then. And I said, yes. He said, because we're having a meeting of priests tomorrow and I can announce that, that um, I've appointed you. And then I think it was probably in that meeting when I heard from another priest who was there sometime later that he announced my appointment and then at some point during the meeting, some priest who was a little bit older than others said, um, um, uh, uh, your grace, and he wasn't the cardinal then, I don't think, your grace, um, uh, some of us um, have some uh, reservations about your appointment of Father Flatter as director of adult education. And the cardinal, who is so quick off the mark, he, he loved that repartee with journalists and in this case with priests. And his, his response to that was, don't you worry. I'll be watching him very, very carefully. If he comes out with any heresies, I'll be down on him like a ton of bricks. You have nothing to worry about. <laughs> it wasn't exactly that they were worried about, but that is Cardinal Pell. Now, one of the, the recollections of my 13 years working for him, for Melbourne, and then nine as Director of Adult Education, was his, his kindness, 
his availability to see me when I wanted to see him, just to report on how things were going, maybe ask him advice on one matter or another. But he was always very cordial, always very available for what I needed. And then one of the traits of him as, as a manager or a director that struck me was he was not a micromanager. He could have been telling me in great detail what he wanted me to do. He did nothing of the sort. In fact, when I got to Adult Ed in Sydney, we kept on going with most of the programs that had been running. We scrapped a few and we added a few others, some of which were quite ambitious, like the certificate courses in faith education, youth ministry, and RCIA administration, or the pre-merge courses, which was a new venture for us. So I told him about those and he said nothing. He just he encouraged me to go ahead. And he would just listen, nod his head, and then his final words were very, very often, keep up the good work. So that was all he had to say. He listened, he might have given a little bit of advice, but he encouraged me on my way. And one of the things that I've said often since working for him there, and even while I was there, is if you know that you have the archbishop behind you, backing you up, you feel very safe very comfortable. Now, mind you, I didn't have much criticism of what I was doing, but I knew that no matter what I did, I could go to him and he would support me. That was a great relief, a great source of, of satisfaction and, and, and safety having him there. So that's just some reflections. I can say a lot more on other occasion during now this interview, but now, let's now, leave it at that for the time. I'll turn to Daniel Hill. I know you have a great history with the Cardinal. Uh, Uncle George, as we like to call him sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's wonderful to hear Father Flato's reflections too, because um, I was head of an agency of the Archdiocese of Wealth for 13, I wasn't head for 13 years, but I worked for, for 13 years, head for about 10 or 11. And um, at first off, I just, I, it, it's, it's not surprising to hear a story like uh, Father uh, Flato's just given that's so similar to my own that feeling of being supported, <clears throat> of not being micromanaged. I, I ran the university chaplaincies um, for the Archdiocese and um, he was always available, always supportive, not a micromanager at all. He knew he needed to have people he trusted um, and I was happy to be one of those people, very honoured to be, to go out and do good work and report back to him and he'd have a few things he wanted, um, uh, but always encouraging always interested in what um, what we were doing. And I always had the end of the meeting as well, keep up the good work. Mm. Um, and that always felt just like you're really lifted and that you're doing a good job because you don't know unless they tell you sometimes and to have someone <laughs> like him tell you you're doing a good job is a really nice thing to hear. Um, but I first met Cardinal Pell um, when I was 16 and he wasn't a Cardinal, he was Archbishop of Melbourne. And um, I think I've told some people this story, but um, I'm from a, a small town in, in the Bulungong Diocese called Kalbara Beach. And I, my family were always very, um, very keen to make sure that the Catholic faith, faith was passed on to us. Um, and it was Orthodox Catholic faith. And that, you know, depending on where you are, that takes a bit of effort sometimes, because sometimes the local church um, 
isn't always that um, uh, that way inclined. Um, and I used to, and then you, uh, we used to have uh, this hero, and I used to read about him in AD two thousand uh, that used to float around my house with his magazine, this great um, bishop and then, and then Archbishop of Melbourne, and then um, the one of the the assistant priests of of, of Nara took us to World Youth Day with Melbourne, and so I met. Um, um, Archbishop Pell at the time, uh, on the way, uh, Holy Land on the way to Rome in, in the year 2000 when I was 16. And of course, I had a bit of a, it was like a deer in the headlights, and I was this great hero. I finally met him, and you know, he wanted to talk to me. It was um, quite funny. But <clears throat> then years later, I was very um, lucky to go to University of Sydney, and I met the, the Cardinal. Um, he had become, he was Archbishop and then Cardinal by then. Um, got to know him well because he loved young people, he loved the university. He'd, he'd, um, turned up to Sydney and um, he was advised that the universities are a great place to start some apostolate because there's not much going on there. So there won't be much opposition or concern. Um, <laughs> and there was a lot of young Catholics. So he's, he's, he told me that and he, he said, um, yeah, so I thought I'd go for it. And uh, he said it was different in Melbourne. Um, in hindsight, he said I could have done some more, but um, there was a lot more entrenched views there. But he Sydney went for it um, and then expanded to the other universities, secular universities in Sydney. And um, he offered me a job after I'd been involved heavily as a student. Um, I was the president of the um, Catholic Students Association, uh, Australian Catholic Students Association and heavily involved on campus and St. John's College and so forth. And so I had the privilege of working for him and then um, he plucked me to become head of the agency. Um, and then through that time as well, I got to know him, not just as a boss or as an archbishop, but also as a man and we'd have a lot of um, kind of uh, casual catch-ups and dinners and he'd, you know, started to meet some of my family members. I'm the oldest of 11, so a lot of them would come to university and I uh, met my family, my parents, and, um, and he became a friend. Uh, uh, I would say um, one of his many, many friends I, I was and um, a close friend and we'd, uh, we're both hist historians and we'd, we'd love talking about those things and have a lot to lot to say about the world um, and it was just wonderful to meet this 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 fellow who um, was so strong so fearless but so kind and so interested in people and and loved people and I learned a lot from him in watching how generous he was not just generous in time not just generous in um, money, like the amount of money, well, I know it was the archdiocese of money, but he was always very, very clear that I'm here to spend money, not to make money. And the only reason I make money is to spend money on, on the apostolate. So he was very good financially, as we know. Um, very, very good, had very good people around him to, to help him with that. But not once was he doing it for the money. Um, he, uh, he was doing it for God. And um, <clears throat> uh, so generous, um, and kind to people who are having who, who, who are struggling, generous and kind to people who had varying views of um, Christianity, varying views of uh, of their Catholicism, um, the, their faith was being shaken. He was there. He was never judgmental. He was never uh, grumpy. He was never disappointed. Um, he was always so kind and open, and even even for those who, who work for him as well. So there was this great um, 
this this great mix of a person who was so well-rounded that he could be really strong, really firm, really clear, really kind and really merciful and just really friendly at the same time. And um, yeah, just a pleasure to to know and, and to call this person a friend. Yeah. I mean, what's just so amazing, I mean, about both your stories is the Cardinal's investment in in the university chaplaincies and in adult education. Do you see the trend? I mean, investing in such important things where people make crucial life decisions. Uh, I believe, um, was, it, was it yourself, uh, Daniel, uh, that said the Cardinal uh, believed that he invested in the university uh, Catholic societies in the chaplaincies because uh, you, if you get them at university, you get them for life. I'm not sure if that was... Yeah, that, that's, that's he's told me that. So he... he um, he was encouraged to keep going with it um, by Father Greg Jordan, um, God rest his soul, a Jesuit, um, who was a, also a friend of mine, a friend of a million other people too. And he um, he did great work in Brisbane at the University of um, Queensland and other places up there. And he was talking to the Cardinal, he gave him that advice that, um, you know, you, you get him at university, you get him for life. And the Cardinal knew that even that's, you know, that's not always the case. It was a pretty good shot at, at how it works in, in the modern modern day. And um, he invested so much in it, invested in, and look, what he did, which I think is quite a sign of how innovative and creative and realistic he was, is that he invested in both Catholic ed university education. He was very much a Catholic university man, ACU and, and bring in Notre Dame and supporting Campion College. But he also really wanted to make sure that the um, students at the big, sec all the secular universities were also very looked after and that it wasn't just youth ministry, it was also uh, an engagement in the academy and intellectual life as well. So it was a, it was a great mix of um, what you might call traditional young adult youth ministry, but we also fully engaged at the intellectual level. Um, and he was a university man himself, uh, Oxford, Oxford educated. Um, and so he kind of, I think he understood uh, the the importance of of that in, in Australian life, um, a lot a lot more than other bishops maybe. And I don't, I'm not not trying to have a go at other bishops, but he he was quite um, astute in in making that that call, which is clearly connected to what what um, Father did in in the um, the adult education space, intellectual life linked to to understanding and, and faith filled life. Yeah, and. Uh... I think I've been a beneficiary of both these uh, initiatives of Cardinal Pell because that's where I first had my reversion to the faith was, uh, uh, and then I quickly moved on to Catholic Adult Education Center in year 10 to further discover my faith and the theology behind it. And then the great work that you've done at, um, at the chaplaincies at Daniel Hill and the great sense of community. And I think witnessing so many people at that age, wander in for a free lunch, but then start learning their faith and and, and the amount of baptisms. <laughs> People who weren't yeah. Catholic became Catholic at university uh, at that level. I mean, I think the, these are the things that really matter. I mean, often there's many initiatives on an ecclesiastical level um, here and there, and there's money pumped into these initiatives, but these are the things that actually matter to bring people to the faith. I mean, catechesis, I mean, part of the overwhelming uh, response to the plenary council uh, last year was uh, catechesis. People want catechesis. And the Cardinal understood it very, very well 
we need to educate minds. If people don't know why they're Catholic, they're going to leave the church. Very simple. I mean, this is a millennial speaking. I mean, this is this is what matters. This is what matter. Um, what matters. I mean, if the church wasn't present, what do you think the effects would be if the church wasn't present at the university uh, level uh, on an intellectual level, uh, Daniel? I'll be interested in what Father uh, himself thinks of that being so well connected to it in many ways. But um, look, I think, well, first of all, you, a huge opportunity is lost. I mean, the Holy Spirit works in whatever way he wishes, but um, from a practical level, the accompaniment um, and the presence of good uh, teachers and good leaders who are doing intentional organising and running events to help people in their faith um, and and maintain their faith, to connect people together yeah. and to be unashamedly sp uh, speaking um, in the academy, whether it's amongst students or um, connecting with professors. Um, look, my, most of the work was amongst students, but speaking to them in a regular fashion where there's a coherent uh, story that about um, the Catholic faith that is um, intellectually stimulating and um, makes sense, to put it that way, that the story makes sense, um, has a huge impact. And um, the amount of students I know, I'm, 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 I was a beneficiary and then um, also privileged to, to be the head of the agency, the amount of young people I know who kept their faith um, and or reverted to a deeper level of their faith or joined the Catholic faith through through that process. And, and Cardinal Pell knew it wasn't just talks and lectures and it was, it was person-focused. He knew that it was about um, collegiality as a group of people getting together and learning from each other with, with, um, with good mentors and good teachers. Yeah. Um, and he loved the idea that we're in the secular universities as well. It was a real yeah. bastion, I suppose, um, a real foothold in um, the secular world, if, if you want to make that, that distinction. Yeah. yeah. And uh, on to your thoughts, Father, about the importance uh, there of, of having that presence at the university level and even at the adult education level. Um, uh, have we not had these initiatives? Uh, where, where where could we find ourselves if it wasn't for the initiatives of his eminence? Well, I had um, 10 years as a university chaplain, six in Tasmania and four in Melbourne at RMIT, and then nine in adult education. But everywhere, as Daniel said, I found a, a thirst and interest in the Catholic faith. One of the first things I started in the University of Tasmania was a series of talks entitled What Catholics Believe and Why. And the very first one was on the existence of God. I, I, I shared an office with the Anglican chaplain. And when I had this talk at, at lunchtime, we had maybe 15 or 16 students packed into this tiny little office, some sitting on the floor. And I explained why God exists. And then at the end of it, one of them, who was really a Catholic from a Catholic school, said, Father, as one of two atheists here, <laughs> I want to thank you for organizing this because it's the only forum for intellectual discussion on topics like this on the campus. And he said, we'll be back. Well, he was, his, the other atheist was his brother. They were Catholics, but they were now calling themselves atheists. And he said, we'll be back. And I thought, I bet you won't. 
but they kept on coming. And in the end, they were defending the faith in case somebody else asked a question that was in some way questioning a matter of faith. So I saw it there very clearly. And I was dealing with academics as well. And I've kept in contact with some of them, both in Hobart and also in Melbourne ever since. And then, in fact, one of the students that was coming to the, the activities on the Bonjour campus of, of RMIT is now the chairman of Parid Victoria, which is a, a, a board that runs now two schools run by parents on the model of Pengar and Redfield in Sydney. The same name, Parid, but it's a separate body, Parid Victoria Parents for Education. So I met him there. He was coming to masses and talks. He brought his Protestant friends. And so we got on very well. And he went on to do very good things now in education in Victoria himself and the founding of these schools. But then I went to, to Sydney, as I said, Cardinal Pell invited me to run the Adult Education Center. And before I went up to, to Sydney from Melbourne, I was thinking along these lines. Suppose the Catholic Adult Education Center didn't exist and I had to start it, what would I do? So my mind went along this line. Catholic adult education. Who are the Catholic adults that I would like to reach? And I thought the moms and dads, the young adults in the pews, not only the ones who are already involved in some ministry in the parish, but especially the other ones. And what is the education that they need? The Catholic faith, because people were not being taught it in a systematic, developed way in the schools for a long time. Let us give them something. And I was going to go through the catechism of the Catholic Church with a fine-tooth comb. So somebody in, suggested, as we were organizing it, don't make the sessions too long. Just make them shorter. So I thought, OK, we'll do the creed first, the first part of the catechism. But instead of running the whole creed, which I thought would take maybe eight or 10 weeks, let's just do five sessions. And each night, there were two classes. So we had, in fact, 10 classes on about half of the creed. And then there was a demand very quickly for a daytime session as well for people who couldn't come at night. Between the two sessions, day and night, over the next two years, when we covered the whole catechism in every series of classes, there were no fewer than 90 people, nine zero in every series. There were people coming from the central coast an hour and a half away to every single one. In fact, there was one night when it had rained heavily in Sydney and half of our staff working in Lidcombe did not come to work. It was raining so heavily and there were, there were floods in various streets. But I was wondering, are these ladies, there was four ladies, are they gonna come all the way from the central coast tonight? Well, they did. And then when we finally finished the whole catechism at the end, they said, what are we going to do now? We'll have a, we'll have a hangover or a, uh, we'll have a withdrawal symptoms, not having these, these classes. So there was a great interest in the faith and that continued with all the other things that we did there. 
young people especially. And if you looked at the profile of those 90 plus students attending those classes, and you say, what age were they? The immense majority, three quarters at least, were in their 20s and 30s. They were young people thirsting for the faith. Many of them went on to be teachers, parents, whatever they did, but they knew the faith very thoroughly. So that was my experience, as, as Daniel said, that people are looking for the faith, often they're not getting it, and then in the university chaplaincies and in through things like adult education, we can give it to them and they will be very grateful. And, and once they have the faith, they're most unlikely to leave the practice of the faith later. Thank you, Lord, for the great legacy of Cardinal Pell in this area. I consider it to be one of his finest legacies. But let's move on to the Cardinal's character. Uh, what was it like, Father, working with him uh, and being in a meeting with him? Well, we've, we've seen a number of aspects. Very attentive, very welcoming, very available, smiling, listening, not um, looking somewhere else, he was looking at you, he was listening, taking on board what you said. And of course, I wrote a, a report every year or maybe every twice a year, I can't remember, just to say what, what we had done in that, in that year in the various aspects of university chaplaincy in, in Melbourne or adult ed in Sydney. So very welcoming. But another thing that I saw very clearly, and this both in Melbourne and in Sydney, was his care for his priests. And one of the most important things that a bishop can do is listen to his priests, get to know them, know what their issues are. And, and this he did, he did it in a number of ways. One of them was he announced that every Thursday, and it might have been Thursday afternoon or possibly the whole day, he would be available in Melbourne for any priest that wanted to see him, and he did not need to make an appointment. He could just go, the cardinal would see him. And I often took advantage of those myself, sometimes to make an appointment or just to go and see him. He wanted to be available for his priests. Another initiative that he had in Melbourne, which he brought to Sydney as well, was a dinner every Monday night for some of his priests. And when I say some, in any one Monday, it was the capacity of the table. In his house in Kew in Melbourne, it was a fairly large table as I remember, but he invited us in alphabetical order and he went through all the priests, that is to say, his own diocesan priest plus the religious. I wasn't religious or diocesan, I was an opus Dei, but he, he invited me as well. And then it was a very informal, cordial environment where there were drinks beforehand, people standing around. He could chat with this one or with that one. Then we sat down to a fairly formal meal. But again, he was talking with the people near him or perhaps across the whole table. We could all be involved in one conversation. So he was getting to know his priests. And this included some of whom weren't his greatest friends. And when I say that, that's, that's a euphemism for they didn't like what he stood for. As one can understand, in the church, there's a variety of opinions on many matters, some of which are, are, are not orthodox. They are simply heretical. 
but he invited everybody and there was a, a fairly, not, not majority, but a fairly large body of priests in Melbourne who weren't on his side, but he invited them. He would listen to them. They would get to know him too. And often it was the case that someone that hadn't known him personally came away thinking, oh, he's not so bad. <laughs> After all, he transported both of those to Sydney, the Thursday meetings without a, an appointment and then the dinners on Mondays. So he was that available, kind, courteous, wanting to get to know you. And, and it didn't make any difference what your views were. He, he, he welcomed you, he listened to you. He was a good, good friend. So Daniel, uh, more about his character. Uh, you knew him very well on a personal level. Uh, let's discuss some recollections that you may have of him and uh, some of the great quirks he also had. I mean, he was very, um, he was very, very uh, upfront. You know, he, the Cardinal yeah. wouldn't, uh, he'd get through rhetoric and just say it the way it is. And uh, we need yeah. more of that today. <laughs> Look, I think I think that's what he's very well known for, and um, he's loved for it in the end by so many people because um, he was very different to what we were used to, and he spoke the truth, and also spoke his own opinions unashamedly. Some things were just his opinion; it wasn't, um, for instance, his discussions on climate change were quite uh, quite strong, and I really loved uh, that. Um, but he made it very clear these are his opinions, um, but. So we saw a man who wasn't um, afraid to speak the truth and expected an exchange of ideas. And um, he was very frank. And we, we, you know, we, there, there's a lot of talk of his, 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 his writings, but he wrote prolifically um, all throughout his, his life um, on a whole range of topics, a lot to do with the faith. Um, he cared deeply about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, obviously, it kind of even sounds trite to say it that way, but that's kind of the way he would talk sometimes. He cared deeply about the church, about um, what Christ wanted in his life. And um, he knew that he had a role as a, as a successor of, of the apostles to, to speak clearly about the truth and, and clearly teach. But I mean, he, he was very much that way. But personally, I mean, my relationship with him um, was like a grandfather who loved his you know loved his his grandson in a way I'm not claiming I was his grandson but I was a spiritual grandson like a lot of people will say the same thing yeah. in my, my age um you know I, I was 24 or 20 I think 24 when he made me head of an agency um and he would have been in his late 60s or early 70s so um we we when we met we weren't equals in a in a sense of experience or age um at all so I always had that a little bit of you know um, a few cheeky jabs, and uh, he did. But he a bit of fun, a bit of fun and games. Always, always very caring and very kind at the same time. So he had a bit of a bit of fun. He loved young people, um, and that experience of of um, being the grandfather figure, uh, being able to have a a frank but fun conversation. He, he enjoyed his sport. He enjoyed um, watching footy with. Um, some of the uni students yeah. uh, watching the grand final. He enjoyed coming to the university. He loved coming to the uni. He loved coming to speak. He loved being protested against. He loved it. He loved being um, in strong debates. I um, so many times he came to the University of Sydney and the protesters and they're jumping up, trying to let him talk, stop him talk. He'd just wait. He'd talk to them. Some of them were quite 
you know, they had quite vile things to say, but he never, never would flinch. And in fact, he talked to me afterwards and said, that means I'm making a difference here. They, even though they're reacting in this negative way, at least they're reacting to me. You know? uh, we've still got something to say. They still care. So he, he'd love, he, he'd love a, a bit of negative press because he knew that he'd hit somewhere and he'd get in some reaction. But I mean, so, so that's, that's his public persona. I keep bouncing back and forth. But, but privately, um, he was very funny, very quick off the mark, loved a joke, um, loved, uh, you, you know, he was a man's man in many ways. Like he reminded me of my own grandfather, loved a, um, loved a drink, loved a meal, very, very sanguine, loved people, um, loved to see young people grow up and, and flourish, wanted the, the best out of them. Uh, loved families, loved getting together with families. He loved um, watching people get married and grow. Loved um, supporting people become priests and 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 uh, and join religious life. Um, one of one of the funniest stories, which is in fact not my story, it's it's somebody else's, who, but it's such a good one. Um, him and a friend were walking to dinner, and um, <clears throat> uh, they were walking through, I think, Pride Park or something, and couple of blokes are yelling out expletives and a bit of abuse. And um, he leaned over to his friend and said, good Lord, that's, uh, that was a bit rough. People never talk like that to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, and there's so many stories like that. And he was cheeky. He was cheeky as an archbishop. He'd be politically cheeky to, you know, various people in the Vatican. Uh, I remember I'd, I, you can, um, uh, have been having meetings with him and he's getting phone calls from politicians um, who I knew and he'd have something to say about who they were to me afterwards. Um, not, not in a mean sense, but in a cheeky sense. You know, he was very cheeky. Uh, he was a good traditional Aussie larrikin. He loved um, Aussie poetry. He was very, very well-rounded, um, loved art, loved culture, loved um, loves football loved the Sydney Symphony you know he um, immersed himself mm. in um, yeah. in the good life in the way that we understand what the good life life to be a life of faith and a life of good things yeah. and that, that's something it's very what I admire about the Cardinal most and uh, the impact he's had on me is 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 that well-roundedness mm. you don't often get to uh, often leaders in the church that Ha almost have it all. Uh, they're, they're great managers, great financial uh, controllers, and, and have an investment investment strategies to make uh, to make money and deliver results. Uh, and have that cultured uh, Aussie larrikin sense and and that good-hearted spirit of a true Australian, and at the same time a doctrinally sound, a good, uh, terrific theologically, and on a human level, on a sporting level. He was just such a well-rounded person. He exemplified uh, what we should strive to be, you know, in, in a well-rounded sense. That's what I love so much about the Cardinal. Uh, and, and that's what made him so successful, George, I think, as a, as a, as a Cardinal, as an Archbishop, because he understood people. Um, he cared about, he understood enough about a lot of different things to have a lot of good people around him and to work well with so many different people from the poorest of the poor um, to to high-ranking politicians and and like he was friends with 
with uh, European nobility. Like he, he could, he could, he could um, operate in in all those spheres and such a great leader because of that. Um, knew his own strengths and could take a punch too. And I think that's um, one of the things. Yeah, you know, if we're talking about practical Catholicism, is um, he was humble in the true sense of if if someone including myself, a friend or, or an enemy, um, if someone wanted to hit back and say they disagreed with him, he wasn't offended by the fact that he was the archbishop and he shouldn't disagree with me. He was engaging on a, on a human level um, with the ideas that that person was, um, was exchanging with him. I mean, he had, but he also knew as a leader, the buck stopped with him, he had to make a call at some stage. But he, if you made a mistake, he was never, he was never um, angry, upset with you. Um, uh, if you disagree with him, you could disagree with him. But um, uh, he knew he'd make the call. And it, it was just uh, a great way to lead. And uh, and he'll be remembered for it. And and if I, I'll say one more thing is that I think around the world, there's a bit of a shockwave happening because there's a bit of what are we going to do now without him? Because there's no one else like him, not the English speaking world um, at that high level position who is so well-rounded so has such strong intellectual depth, has a great ability with, with people um, and, is in his, um, and is unafraid, like his motto said, uh, be not afraid, he was not afraid. <laughs> just, uh, just that courage. What is, but another thing which I admire so much about the Cardinal and uh, the both of you would definitely have something to say about this is, is just his resilience. That's something I forgot to mention, just to, to, mm. to pack it all down, the resilience he has like often today, all of us are guilty of trying to be politically correct, appease the masses, especially when it comes to dealing with the media, the mainstream media. We were often, you know, uh, fall a little bit timid in that sense. Cardinal Pell was was straight up, you know, he would he would make his views known, he'd fight for his views, and and what's great about it is just his resilience. I, I don't think, from what the both of you might recall. He, he was too concerned about his own reputation, despite all the controversies and especially being jailed. I mean, you want to talk about martyrdom. You want to talk about what it actually means uh, to be a cardinal and to deserve the red color of cardinal. There's nobody you can think of who deserves the color red, uh, the trail of blood, as we used to have in the Kappa Magna, a trail of blood, um, then Cardinal Pell for being jailed crimes he didn't commit and and he stood resiliently obviously driven by his faith and his personal character intertwined with it uh, it even got to the point where you know being interviewed by um uh, uh, on the bolt show uh, he he sort of made prison look <laughs> he sort of made prison look like uh, like, like a breeze where he was waking up at the same time, he was giving. He became a philanthropist, waking up at the same time, uh, uh, getting some sunlight, doing some reading, doing his prayer. Yeah. He was telling us about his plan, uh, his plan of life in mm -hmm. in prison. So it just it was so inspiring, reading his prison yeah. journal and seeing his whole thing that he kept his head above, obviously by the grace of God and his faith, but. What do the both of you, starting with Father, have to say about that whole phenomenon, about his resilience, especially in the context of him being jailed falsely? Mm. Well, one of the things that I remember from the first volume of his prison journal was 
they were very concerned that he might be considering suicide. So they were watching him and asking him how he was, was he getting down, was he depressed? And he said, on the contrary, and he was just very, as you say, resilient is a good word to use. He, he was taking it, this was what God intended for him at that time. He accepted it, he prayed, he read, he read all those letters that he was getting from all over the world, supporting him. And that was a great source of strength for him, undoubtedly. But to go through that 404 days in prison, unjustly sent there, and then the uh, appeal tribunal of Victoria, where there was two to one to turn down the appeal, except for Justice Weinberg that wrote that long um, defense of, of him and his case. And then of course that goes to the high court. One of the things that a, a lawyer from Melbourne told me is that he said in a criminal matter, it is most rare to have a unanimous decision of the high court to uphold an appeal. You'll get five to four or whatever numbers there were, there was seven or nine, but it, unanimous is very rare, but they realized the case had no merit against him and it, it was all on his side. I mean, there were two aspects of the, of the testimony that, that revealed he could not possibly have committed that crime. And, um, Anyway, there he is. He, he survived all of that. He grew through it. He, he kept up his prayer life. He responded to the letters of people and not, not writing back, of course. But um, uh, he was just an outstanding person. Actually, one of the other things that I thought is worth mentioning is another character trait is both fortitude, well, we've seen that, and magnanimity. Where I, what I have in mind is this, that to have World Youth Day in 2008 in Australia was a matter of a very big mind, magnanimous, who thinks, yes, we can do it here, and this can be a great boost to the youth of Australia and of the world. And he would have had opposition, even perhaps from his fellow bishops for that. In fact, it reminds me that I was sitting with Bishop Fisher at a dinner once when he was Auxiliary Bishop of Sydney. Well, we all know that World Youth Day came about in its practical aspect because Bishop Fisher and Danny Casey, the business manager, did all the work to make it happen. And I was sitting with Bishop Fisher and I said, I once saw a sign in a shop which read, we noticed there are three types of people who come into the shop. People who make things happen, people who watch things happen and people who don't have the foggiest idea of what is happening. And I said, <laughs> I think you need to add another category on the front end of that. People who have the vision of what could happen. Cardinal Pell didn't make World Youth Day happen. Danny Casey and Bishop Fisher did. They put in an incredible amount of work to bring yeah, off that successful world youth day that they did. But the Cardinal had the vision. Without his vision, without his fortitude, without his magnanimity of thinking we can do this, it would never have happened. No sooner had I said that than Bishop Fisher said, yes. And I want to add another category on the other end, people who try to stop things from happening. So <laughs> if you take World Youth Day, it was in a momentous enterprise which did a colossal amount of good for the Catholic youth of Australia 
and other people, even the journalists, seeing the Pope, yeah. seeing the, the youth and whatnot. But at the same time, practically, he was initiating and bringing to fruition later two other enormous projects. One was the Benedictus the 16th Conference Center west of Sydney, buying it, remodeling it, building new buildings like the chapel. It's a magnificent conference center where many, many activities are held. But to think of buying that and spending all that money to remodel and to construct new buildings at the same time as he was doing World Youth Day is incredible. And then add to that at about the same time, I'm not sure of the actual year of the beginning of each one of these, but Domus Australia in Rome. So buying this great building that the Mars Fathers had had, getting it an architect to redesign it so it functioned like a hotel, then a lot of money goes into remodeling it, refurbishing it until it has the chapel, or they had a chapel before. But it's a magnificent place where Australians going to Rome can, can find lodging with, with its Australian ethos and, and diet and an Australian chaplain and a, and a beautiful chapel. And so to have the magnanimity, both in having a vision of what could happen and not being worried about the financing. As, as Daniel said, he could get money. He had lots of friends. And one of the things he said at the onset when he announced that we were holding World Youth Day in a clergy conference was, I can tell you priests, there will not be any levy on the parishes to make up any shortfall from the expenses of World Youth Day. There never was a levy. I don't know what the, the budget was, but it, it, it was a big success. He was not daunted by the expenditure of a lot of money. So this is the character of the man and his contribution to Australian life and the life of the world with World Youth Day. And then with Benedict XVI Conference Center and Thomas Australia, lots of people have benefited from that. This is his character and it is to be admired for that, not only resilience to face difficulties, but the challenges of life and undertaking very, very ambitious projects. Uh, congratulations to Cardinal Pell. I mean, we're all indebted yeah, yeah. to him for that and so much more. Absolutely. Just a man of a man of vision, a man of vision, um, a man who could who could clean house and um, at the same time just see um, what can be done and he went for it. So creative. Uh, I, I, you can't beat the word uh, magnanimous. That's what he was like personally to people, but also as a leader, wasn't he? Uh, just, just phenomenal character. Phenomenal character. I, I talk just might want to mention a bit about my own experience of his resilience. Um, I don't think I could say I've heard I heard him ever say a bad word about anybody. Mm -hmm. um, he would critique ideas. He would critique leadership styles at worst but he would not say a bad word about anyone. And he was so optimistic. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, in my own view, maybe I have a tendency to be a bit pessimistic sometimes and always come out of my discussions with him with a, with a, um, a magnanimous, more magnanimous view. Um, I had the privilege of, of visiting him in, in prison in, in Barwon um, and my, my, my mother and father came with me. Um, and he was speaking of red, he was wearing a, 
bright red tracksuit, you know. <laughs> he said, oh, oh, I've got my Cardinals tracksuit on today, he said. <laughs> and, uh, but but um, one of the many things we talk about is what he'd call his criminal mates, you know. He said, oh, my criminal mates, you know, we write letters to each other. And he he, he um, immediately connected with um, the other people incarcerated around him. And he cared about them. He cared about them. Uh, he was in a, the, the first prison he was at. I can't remember the name in Melbourne. He said, oh, I was a shock in prison. Poor souls screaming at night and he'd, he'd pray for them. Um, mm. And he still kept in contact with um, uh, some of the, the um, shocking characters in, uh, that he, ha he, he had to share prison with in the solitary confinement section. Um, and uh, as I say, he, he kept in touch with them after, after he left and he talked about them very fondly. So um, his resilience um, was clearly, uh, to me, um, a bit of old school Aussie resilience. You, you don't complain, you tighten your belt, um, you stop whinging and you have a go. And that, that was, you, know, um, you don't get that as much these days, um, but that was his generation. But I mean, he... he he got hit with more than what that attitude can 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 look after. And every now and then, um, he'd hint or confide in me that some things is finding pretty pretty tough. Um, only very minor, very small little little mentions, but um, a bit of a tenderness there uh, to him. But he um, was able to go push through it, and he would say because of of his faith. Uh, he and you imagine someone like him and the amount of people praying for him, how, how many angels were with him. Um, but still, he was that well-rounded character, even in his spiritual life. Cardinal Pell didn't get away with just um, being an archbishop and a cardinal and a, and a Vatican, um, a, a very senior Vatican official. He also got the white martyrdom of prison. Uh, he was given a very you know, well-rounded um, spiritual life. And I... I Pray God that um, uh, that uh, such difficult things are never given to me. But he he had it, and it was given to him. And what a witness that um, is, and what a witness that'll continue to be uh, for for anyone who, who reads his diary or, or or hears his story with an open heart. We, we highly recommend you get a copy of his prison journals. Um, mm -hmm. They're three volumes published by Ignatius Press. Uh, you can order them off Perusia Media or any Catholic bookstore. Uh, or you can go to Amazon, they're available online. So they're the prison journal of Cardinal George Pell. Uh, definitely get a copy of them. Um, and it's just tremendous. But let's quickly leave Australia and, and, and go to his final legacy there in the Holy See. What do you think, and a brief answer from the both of you, what do you think his greatest contribution that uh, for, uh, is to the universal church that will be felt in the, in the coming years? To, to, for the Holy See. I know he was head of the Secretary of the Economy of the Holy See. Um, hopefully he did some great good there, especially after he had to come back and fight charges. But uh, we'll start with Father. What do you think his uh, greatest contribution is for the Universal Church having worked in the, in the Holy See? Now, I would say perhaps his work there in various congregations, he was a consultant to various congregations, he was on Pope Francis's Council of Cardinal Advisors. It was a very important role. He had nine C9. cardinals from different parts of the world. They call them the C9. And they were advising him on the restructuring of the Roman Curia, 
on other matters. And I think their advising Pope Francis on various matters that he had to deal with was probably very important. But I think apart from cleaning up the finances or at least attempting to do so, which is where I think he met his enemies that may have led to what happened in Melbourne, we can't be sure, but I tend to think that's the case, that um, if, the, if the finances of the Vatican are now more transparent, when I, when I talk to people about what he was doing there, I, I put it very simply, he was simply applying to the universal church's finances what every diocese in Australia had, which was when I was running an agency and Daniel would say the same thing. At the end of a financial year, you would make your budget for the following year. Then at the end of the, the following year, you would have to have your accounts audited externally. You would present your audited accounts with a budget for the following year. It was just clear, transparent. He applied that to the universal church, but I don't think that is the legacy that the average person is going to see. I think it would probably be more when he was traveling the world and speaking in the United States, speaking in England, speaking in different places about things in the church or other ideas of an intellectual sort and having a great influence on many people in other countries. And of course, they would get reported around the world too. So I think possibly, I'm just, we, we can only speculate here, that his, his involvement in the public sphere around the world in his writings and also in his speaking probably had a more immediate impact on, on many people around the world than being in a consultant to various Roman dicasteries. And Daniel, uh, over your thoughts. Yeah, look, I'd, I'd firmly agree, of course, with um, what Father Flood has said, um, 100%. His, I mean, he's, he, he was considered, I don't know if you know, you'd never know if this is true or not, but um, it's worth a thought that he was the most popular and influential bishop in the United States of America. I mean, that's, a, <laughs> that's, a, um, that's an amazing achievement, um, but he was, he was a cardinal for the English speaking world um, and beyond, um, not just for Australia in the end. And he was, World Youth Day was an example of that. Um, but that didn't, it didn't stop there and his teaching and, and writing um, and encouragement of others, um, regardless of where they came from. A friendship with George Weigel is a great example of, of something um, uh, in his American connections, but that's just, just one well-known example. Uh, very, very influential. Uh, I would only add, add one other thing uh, to that and his involvement, particularly um, in the election of two popes. And um, I'd point out his involvement in the election of Benedict XVI. Um, we don't know what happened, but the word is that he was very involved in um, doing the numbers for, for Cardinal Ratzinger at the time. Um, now, we know the Holy Spirit's um, the chief mover of these things, but, but the people behind them also uh, commune with the Holy Spirit. And he did so in very, very, very significant ways twice. Um, he was ready to um, advise and guide um, if necessary. Um, after Francis as well, but he, he passed away um, before he um, had, the had the opportunity to do so. But he was in Rome just in case he needed to, and that, that's quite quite well known as well. So um, that's and just a, in, in addition to what, what, what Father has said, I think um, he um, he used his uh, 
VA Santa Maria um, numbers skills from back in the movement days uh, in, in the College of Cardinals. And he was fearless in doing that. And that's a great legacy of his. Excellent. Could we see him as a potential saint? Who knows? <laughs> George, George when, we, when we had the interview a couple of weeks ago about Pope Benedict, after he had died, I said, uh, I suspect that they will open his cause of beatification. I don't know whether we will see placards reading Santo Subito, as we saw after the, the death of Pope John Paul II in his funeral. But there it was, a big placard, Santo Subito. So Benedict XVI, I think, undoubtedly, Cardinal Pell, um, it, it goes from popular popular um, regard for his sanctity, and that could very well be the case. I mean, he suffered a lot. Yeah. He was a very prayerful man of God. So that, that it's a very distinct possibility, too. Absolutely. And we'll, well, well, Father, I've got the spray spray can and a couple of old sheets ready to go for Cardinal Pell's funeral. I'll get I'll have some of the students holding up Santo Subito on the, <laughs> the streets of Sydney on the, as his as his uh, as his his hearse comes past. I'm sure. <laughs> There's no hearse. Oh, no, no, the hearse does go out the side door down to the the, the bottom, and then it'll go back yeah, into right. the, uh, the yeah. crypt from there. But uh, yeah. do we have any date confirmed dates at the moment for Sydney? I know we had his funeral um, February second. Yeah, I've heard the same. Yeah. February second, Thursday. Yeah. So the February second. Um, it's it's not confirmed, but that's the the date okay. going around. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I'm sure you can definitely get access to uh, that on the Archdiocese website if you're looking to attend his funeral. But thank you very much, gentlemen. I really enjoyed this tribute uh, to Cardinal Pell, and uh, let's pray for his soul, Father. If you could uh, lead us for a prayer for the dead. Um, uh, that we may be able to do that and close off here tonight. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord of life and death, you have called to your presence in recent weeks two outstanding figures of the Church in Pope Benedict XVI and Cardinal George Pell. In your mercy, look after them take them quickly to yourself if they are not already in heaven. And all the souls of the faithful departed throughout the world that have died in your grace and friendship and are ready to go to heaven, have mercy on them, bring them swiftly to you to the eternal reward that you have in store for all of us. And, and through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. The Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you for tuning into the Catholic Toolbox. If you want to access the show, you can go on any podcast platform or the Catholic Toolbox Show.com. That is the Catholic Toolbox Show.com. Until next week, God bless. Take care and take action. In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says.
join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity.